This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! Welcome to the Hot House edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm joined as ever by Kathy O'Neill, the author of Weapons of Math Destruction. Hello. See what she did there. And also Jordan Wiseman, the Moneybox columnist at Slate. Hello, y'all. And we are going to be talking about Airbnb which is doing, may or may not be doing interesting things in New York City. We are going to be talking about Goldman Sachs, the great vampire squid, and their um, proprietary trading and or market making and whether there's a difference and the Volcker rule and all manner of sexy stuff thereabouts. But first, I want to talk about hydrofluorocarbons. Yeah, could say that ten times fast. That is that is a that is a sexy, sexy phrase. Hydrofluorocarbons. Um, well, they were the, well. I mean, we can call them HFCs. Okay, let's do it. That's easier. Um, the world gathered in Kigali in Rwanda last week and hashed out the well. It's kind of interesting. So you guys remember back in the day? I don't know. I'm I'm an old. Jordan's probably too too young to remember this. There was this big scare over the thing called the hole in the ozone layer. No, I remember that's like actually the first environmental issue I can kind of recall from like my youth. That was like I'm, I'm pretty sure there must have been like a teenage mutant ninja turtles the, for you. That was like the equivalent of how I was like trained to get under my desk in the case of a nuclear holocaust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jordan was just trained to put on an extra layer of sunscreen. <laughs> yeah, there was there had to be like some Nickelodeon PSA or something about it back in the day. But. So so what happened for those of us who who are a little bit hazy on this um a bunch of uh satellites started looking at uh, the amount of ozone in the ozone layer especially over antarctica and the southern hemisphere and started running a time series on this and and started seeing that there was this hole in the ozone layer that the ozone was disappearing um and ozone is a really nasty poisonous gas and we don't like it but we do like it in the higher reaches of the atmosphere because it helps to filter out ultraviolet radiation and so um everyone got very worried about the hole in the ozone layer because it was meaning that people were getting sunburned and generally making you know burning up crops and doing all other nasty things and they realized that the thing which was causing the whole hole in the ozone layer was Kathy HCFC Hydrofluorocarbons. CFCs. CFCs, okay. Oh, okay. Fluorofluorocarbons. <laughs> okay, yeah. Oh, C, okay, CFC. CFCs. Yeah. We got close enough. <laughs> um, CFCs were things which you found in aerosols, and they were also used as refrigerants. And 
um, in a really quite amazing um, piece of international cooperation, um, which was actually also not dissimilar to the um, international cooperation which put an end to green um what do you remember acid rain oh yeah mm-hmm. yeah so what what they did was they just said okay here's this thing which is causing acid rain or right. here's this thing which is causing the hole in the ozone layer and we're just going to put um a cap on the amount that your that the world is allowed to release and that cap is going to reduce to zero over, over a certain amount seems, of time. seems smart and then because everyone knew that that was a cap everyone knew that everyone else had to do it you could you could you would get like um, you could trade if you went over and started using it. You could buy like em- emissions from other people and stuff. But mm-hmm. the overall cap went down, and this is something which people want to do with carbon, um, but has never. I mean, it's happened in Europe a bit, and then the the like New England a bit, but not globally. Um, so anyway, so they did this with chlorofluorocarbons, and it worked. the The amount of CFCs going up into the atmosphere went down to zero. Basically, there's still a bit of a hole in the ozone layer because these things take a you know. Subs- last for a long time, but it is not growing anymore. And, right. and we it was a major victory problem, which we won. Yay! But oh, yes. oh yeah, there was a there's there, a problem. There, there is a but here. What did they replace the CFCs with? HCFs. Oh my god, is that right? HFCs, HCFCs, but also more importantly, HFCs. Okay, gosh. So H H HCFCs have been used mostly in. More developing countries um, in the in the West, we mostly replaced it with HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, and hydrofluorocarbons have no deleterious effects on the ozone layer, but they do have really they are really really strong greenhouse gases. So I've heard Potent. that they're a thousand times worse than carbon. They're a thousand yeah. times worse than carbon dioxide. Yeah, and yeah. these these things, for reference, they get used often in refrigerators or air conditioners. That's they're cool. That's they're they're part of coolants essentially. And, and so I'm just going to jump in here and say. Like everybody wants an air conditioner. Everybody, yeah. well, especially that's, Indians. That's like getting, people in India are like, "Give me a fucking air conditioner." I've got num- I've got numbers ready about that for later once we get back to that subject. But anyway, so no, Felix, no, bring, bring us your well, okay. So the well, I guess we should actually share the news. We've kind of done this long intro. So. Okay, so, so basic, okay, <laughs> so so one of the things that is famously impossible in these days of American congressional gridlock is that. These kind of deals where the entire world comes along and signs a deal saying we're going to ban CFCs are politically impossible yeah. to get past the U.S. Congress. The Senate is always going to wind up vetoing them. And so there wasn't much hope that we would be able to do for CFCs what we did with HFCs until John Kerry had a you know, bright You got idea. those c- confused. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you've been doing so perfectly. Sorry, sorry you're absolutely right. <laughs> there wasn't much hope that we were going to be able to do for HFCs what we had done for CFCs. Thank you, Kathy. But John Kerry But John Kerry out. was sitting in the bath one day and said, Eureka. Holy crap. I've got an idea. We already have the CFC treaty. It has already been ratified by every country in the world. Why don't we just amend that existing treaty, which is already in force... Instead of passing a new one, yeah. And, and so is that the Montreal something? something? Yeah, the, yeah, the Montreal Protocol, right? So the Montreal Protocol is yeah. is the ozone layer thing, mm-hmm. which dates back like what over twenty years. Mm-hmm. And they just dusted that thing off, all met in Rwanda, and said, "Hey, let's let's give this a fresh coat of paint." And now, and you know, you know, sort of, you know, 
copy and paste, find and replace, um, or for you know where it says CFC, let's just replace it with HFC. And and that's and it's a little bit more complicated than that. But essentially, what they've done is they've managed to resuscitate the more or less you know past its prime CFC treaty and made it really super relevant now, so they can bring down HFCs using the same technique. They, they've done a great end run end run around American intransigence. But um, yeah, I, I, to just give a little bit more context of why this is so important, I mean. People are saying that this could prevent the globe by, uh, from warming by about 0.5 degrees Celsius. This is this is a big deal, this reduction in hydrofluorocarbons. Um, and the reason it's so important, again, is because these are used in uh, air conditioners and refrigerators, which are going to become much, much more widespread in places like India. India, very hot, <laughs> subtropical, subtropical, tropical climate. Only about 2% of Indians have an air conditioner right now, even though they have this rapidly growing middle class. And the number of air conditioners is growing about 20% per year. Um, There's some estimates that they're going to be 700 million new air conditioners around the world by 2030, 1.6 billion of them by 2050. So this is one of those issues where if we don't get ahead of it now, you're going to have this, you know, essentially just basic consumer appliance uh, very much exacerbating this existential problem in climate change. And one of the reasons to think long term is that this new accord or treaty, whatever it is, um, it doesn't happen immediately. As far as I've read in Wall Street Journal, um, there's an 80% reduction expected of HFCs by 2045. So it's not all at once. It, it, it's very, it's, um, yeah. So what happens is, is, Jordan says, the demand for air conditioning services is enormous in India. And India was the one, weirdly, I mean, so in a weird way, surprisingly, the, the country sort of dragging its feet the most on this deal. Um, the sub-Saharan African countries kind of signed on more, more with more alacrity, like um, Rwanda. But it's true that it's very easy for we sort of rich air-conditioned countries to say, "Oh, yeah, we'll just replace the HFCs with something else. No big deal." In India, the fact that the something else is significantly more expensive than the HFC is a really big problem, and they already still. India is one of the last countries in the world which still uses HCFCs in its air conditioners, you know, which are also really quite nasty. Um, greenhouse gases as well as contributing to the ozone layer. So can we talk a little bit about the technologies that are going to replace these current so HFC ones? A few things like R600, and these technologies exist, and they are a little bit more expensive. And so, so long as no one has a real incentive to use them, people tend not to use them. But the minute that you start implementing a treaty like this, everyone has an incentive to use them. The world can easily ramp up to produce them. Um, And if the experience we had with NO2 and CFCs is any indication, the, um, the amount that they are more expensive is going to disappear to zero pretty pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I want to. Um, yeah, I feel like this whole event kind of uh, speaks to one of my pet theories, which is that most good things now happen in the United States when no one's looking. Um, like, you know, I, I just imagine if John Kerry had been negotiating this while the presidential campaign was not going on. And you had uh, all of Congress essentially. I mean, you can just see the Republican line would be like they're trying to take our air conditioning away. Air conditioning away. That would have just been going through the news. Fox News would have been talking about how John Kerry is trying to take your air conditioning away in Kentucky or in Arizona. And there's just no way. I mean, it probably would have been able to happen because it was going through this old treaty. But it's you know hard to imagine it happening as smoothly and quietly as it did. I'm going to disagree with that. I'm going to just push back because. 
the truth is this is a huge boon for American businesses. I mean, I think one of the reasons that India uh, is push- pushing back is because they're poor and they're very hot. But the other reason is they have a lag with technology and the American businesses are the one that is going to get this business, this the, new the business. Ama- the, 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 the amount of patents on HFC uh, replacements is not high. This is like known technology. Yeah. But it does, they, they do exist and they generally belong to American companies. Oh, do they? I thought they were like South, maybe I'm wrong. I, I read it a lot. It was like South Korean and they, stuff they, like it's that. It's not just American companies. But is Honey, Honeywell is one of the big Are ones. Are they? Okay. Um, but it's still not clear, by the way. I mean, John Kerry and the State Department are doing their very best to present this as a fait accompli. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are definitely senators who are looking at this going, oh, no, 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 this needs ratification. So we will see um, what happens. But I, the thing which interests me the most about this deal is the sort of the big conceptual argument about what we need to do to fight global warming is this argument between the developed world and India, let's just say the US and India, where the US um, used unbelievable quantities of greenhouse gases per capita to become developed. And now that it is developed, it doesn't need as much. And they're saying, well, we should cut emissions. And India's saying, well, that's, all, that's fine by you because you've, like, you know, you've climbed the ladder already. We're down at the bottom of the ladder. We need to be able to do our little, you know, get rich thing as well. And the way you do that is by emitting carbon. And so the way that the HFC treaty deals with this is it treats different countries differently. And so while the US and Western Europe, they need to take their 2011 to 2013 baseline and reduce it it by 85% by 2036, which is a quite aggressive um, timetable. India, by contrast, has a, is going to have a baseline from 2020 to 2022. Like they, they are, haven't even started measuring yet. Um, they well, they'll only start freezing growth in 2024, and then they only like bring it back down to lower levels by 2045. They get a bunch of sort of extra years of being able to use this, which some people are like, that's not fair. How come they get to use more HSEs? But a lot of other people are saying, well. You know, that's how development works. And so we have to allow them to use these things while they're still cheap. And that's how you get people to sign on. Yeah. yeah. It's it's a little trickier, I think, though, with things like, um, you know, uh, power plants, for instance, because if you, you know, if you have people buying air conditioners, they can replace them in a relatively, you know, short span of time. But if you build a coal plant in India, that's going to be with you for a very, very long time. That's that's part of the, the I think, you know, you're building that infrastructure that lasts that that makes the calculation a little bit harder for giving them a you know this which, ramp up. Which is which is one reason it's easier to, you know, attack global warming through HFCs than it is through a global carbon emissions. Yeah. Um agreement, which I think we can all agree is not going to happen anytime soon. We can agree that this is good news. But this is good news. So well done, us, international community. (laughs) Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. Kathy. Yeah. 
We took our house off the Airbnb listings a few years ago when New York decided that it was illegal to rent out your house for anything less than 30 days. And Mm. I hear that not everyone followed my lead. Yeah, you're right. There have been a lot of people that are cheating on Airbnb. And so the, the the thing that's happening this week is that there's been a, basically a bill that that everybody's voted for and is now on Cuomo's, um, Cuomo's desk. Who's Cuomo? Oh, he's the governor of <laughs> New York State. Okay. So it's a New York State bill um, about basically just about Airbnb. And Here's what happened. Um, this week, it, Cuomo, the governor of New York, got a bill that on his desk that's going to go through unless he vetoes it. He's he's going to be gonna either sign it. sign it or veto it. Probably going to sign it. Yeah. Um, it's going to impose steep fines on anyone who rents out of a whole apartment through Airbnb for fewer than thirty days. So exactly the the people which has been illegal for years. It's been illegal since twenty ten. But there, what there haven't been fines before. There have not been fines because Airbnb just simply doesn't want that rule to exist. And somehow Airbnb managed to prevent the fines from existing. Uh, I think it just took a while for all these. Airbnb didn't to... track it. I think is is the truth. Like Airbnb. I mean, um, Airbnb obviously knows how many places are being rented out in New York City for less than thirty days. Yeah, yeah. And here's the thing: Airbnb has, you know, gets on the phone with its with with its investors and says, you know, we have a great uh, we have a great business. So it was last evaluated evaluated at thirty billion dollars. We have a great business as long as like we can get the regulations to work with us, and they seem to be pretty happy with the regulations, except in New York and maybe San Francisco. Yeah. So basically, what you're saying is that up until now, while ostensibly there have been regulations which prevent people from Airbnb being out their places, practically. Airbnb has still been massive in New York and people have just ignored the fact what they're doing is illegal and they've kept on doing it. And now there's a new bill making something which was already illegal, illegal, but people are kind of putting teeth in it. They, they feel that this is, is has a bit more teeth and is going to be more enforced. Yeah. So, I mean, listen, Airbnb has been playing dirty. And I know this because I actually know this guy named Tom Slee, who does this amazing job. Tom Slee is awesome. He is awesome. Um, and he actually wrote a book called what you, What's Yours is Mine Against the Gig Economy. I suggest people read it. But what he also does is he actually scrapes the Airbnb um, website to find out what's actually there. Um, so he has sort of his own running database of what listings are on New York City um, Airbnb. And he found that in February... Uh, that that they actually purged more than a th- uh, a thousand listings um, last November just in order before the... just before they sort of o- like opened up their data quote unquote to New York City to say hey look we don't have that many people doing this illegal okay, thing so, no this is a different illegal thing we should we should talk about the two different illegal things which are going on now talk about the multiple listings because yeah, that's so another the, thing the renting out your house for oh, right, thirty right, right. days You're has right. been illegal all along the thing which people are really upset about yeah. Yeah. Is the people who own multiple places and rent all of them out on Airbnb as their profession, basically. Yeah. That's how I make my living. I buy out places and I rent them out on Airbnb. And obviously, this goes down as about as happily as you would expect by the people, you know, with the people who live in those neighborhoods. That um, is something which Airbnb said that it was cracking down on. And it's not clear whether they're being completely intellectually honest what? about how hard they're trying to crack down on it. Yeah, they were fudging the numbers. Well, they and, said they and banned Tom it And Tom Sleek caught them fudging the numbers. And so now what they're doing is they've said that they've banned it, and they're like, we're not going to allow you to have multiple listings on Airbnb, which is just a kind of can be taken as a nod and wink to say, 
hey, you can have multiple listings on Airbnb just so long as you do it under a bunch of different names. I, so yeah. listen, I mean, I want to I want to also mention that Airbnb came out just this week with a bunch of offers because they're scared of of the of Cuomo's signing this bill, right? And the new offers, which have never been on the table before from them, include the following: um, they're going to create a registry of ho- of hosts, like a registry that they can share with the city. They earlier said that that would invade privacy. Um, they're going to create a hotline for neighbors to call and complain about loud Airbnb parties. Um, They're going to bar hosts who violate local regulation three times. They were going to actually share revenue with the landlords if it's a renter who's using their apartment for Airbnb. Um, And they're also going to collect taxes. Um, So they're doing all these things to try to convince uh, Cuomo and the rest of us that they're they're going to be honest. And this is is basically part of the dance between gig economy companies and regulators that we can expect this kind of thing to be a template in future that legislators pass certain bills there's a bunch of negotiation between companies and regulators and um, legislators and lawmakers and you know and eventually you wind up with a kind of uneasy truce between the regulator and the regulated. And that's, you know, what we've had in financial services for decades. And it looks like it's slowly emerging in in like Uber and Airbnb and places like that. And New York, you know, as anyone who's taken an Uber in New York will know, you know, is has already been ahead of the curve on Uber. You need to be a registered um, with the Taxi and Limousine Commission as a taxi to to be an Uber driver in New York, unlike almost any other city. New York is big enough, it has 8 million people, that these companies are willing to do things in New York that they're not willing to do in other So cities. New York City is actually like the biggest, by revenue, the biggest um, market for Airbnb. It has a billion dollars per year in revenue. And the question becomes, like, if this bill goes through, which it looks like it will, like, will other cities demand the same kind of rules um, that New York City has? And, and if it and does... will Airbnb be as inclined to make the kind of concessions that they're making in New yeah. York in other cities because other cities aren't as important to them? Yep. I, I do wonder about the multiple listings thing actually. Ha- I mean, actually happening how how carefully they're going to enforce it because this is sort of anecdotal but if you go on airbnb and use it regularly those those landlords i mean i'm going to call them landlords because they're kind of small hoteliers essentially at this point i mean they really do seem to make up a disproportionate amount of what you find um they you know it's i don't know if it's an 80 20 rule or kind of kind of thing but i so let me let me give you some numbers about that okay so tom slee again he looked through the ones in lisbon and he he noted Mm -hmm. that airbnb that um said about Lisbon that 72% of our listers only have one listing, right? Mm -hmm. But then he noticed, okay, but if you think about the other 28%, they constitute two-thirds of the business. Yeah. As I say, I've Airbnb'd in Lisbon, and that's what you you find the same damn picture of the host on seven different listings. (laughs) Um, And like, you know, you go, the thing is you go to some cities now and, um, or you, you go to some city pages now and you'll think you're interacting with two different hosts. And then you'll quickly realize if you're messaging with them that it's the same person. Um, so it, it is kind of a cat and mouse game and between both the regulator and the company and then the company maybe kind of winking and nodding to the the owners or the people, the hosts, or maybe actually trying to enforce it. And the fact is that enforcing regulations on Airbnb, because it's this sort of multi-tentacled beast, by its nature is much harder and much gnarlier 
than simply enforcing regulations on a hotel, which is sitting on a certain street corner, and you can mm-hmm. just walk in there and say, hey, you need to do this. And I think the place where this is most visible um, and, and where it's really come to a head, like in nowhere else, is in Reykjavik, where basically no one, you know, the, the entire city of Reykjavik seems to have been turned into one huge Airbnb and no one no one <laughs> seems to have anywhere to live because the, everyone's airbnb out there places and there's, this bit, there's been this huge boom in Icelandic tourism over the past I, I was going to say, Iceland's basically bougie Disney now like that. <laughs> so, so one thing that's happening in San Francisco, which is interesting as related to this, is that they're actually changing the design of their actual, like their app or whatever it is, so their website so that it's easier to track this kind of thing. Okay. And I feel like as soon as they admit that they can do that, then cities are going to be like, oh, we want that feature. You know, and mm-hmm. I think so. In, in other words, like it is hard to regulate this because it's so different in every place. But if they have a feature that they could switch on, which they c- can, then I think cities could could demand that. So it's interesting, but it does seem that San Francisco and New York are going to become the sort of proof of concept regulators for a bunch of these companies. And that if you can, if if they wind up doing the heavy lifting of doing all of the negotiation and everything, then in principle, maybe they can serve as a template for other cities. Although, as we saw um, in the fight between Uber and Austin, the kind of things that Uber is willing to agree to in New York, it is not necessarily willing to agree to in places like Austin. And that brings the question, like, to what extent are Uber and Airbnb, like, worth what people thought think they're worth? Or what will it look like in a couple of years when these regulations become firmer? Yeah. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Jordan. Yeah. Tell me about Vampire Squids. Oh, they're delicious. No. Um, (laughs) So there is a very fortunate bond trader, Goldman Sachs, named Tom Malafronte, who the Wall Street Journal reported uh, apparently made about $100 million uh, for the bank earlier this year doing bond trading. Wait, I thought his bonus was $100 million. No, 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 no. that was just... No. Profits on his death. Oh, okay, yep. okay. It's a little death. bit less disgusting. Yeah, yeah. No, he was not. It was not a one hundred million dollar bonus. Um, Although and, I'm sure his bonus will be enough to buy somewhere nice in the Hamptons. Yeah, it's going to be ten sticks. Uh, yeah. and, and you know, he was essentially this is a guy who was in you know junk bond trading. He was he specialized in the debt of companies that were going in and out of junk bond status. And as you may recall from earlier this year, there was a a kind of big scare over what was happening to junk bonds, especially in the energy sector because of oil prices. There was a lot of volatility. And he kind of took advantage of, took advantage of that, took some risks, uh, ended up buying a lot of bonds from people who wanted to sell them at that point, 
and then like a good bond trader, unloaded them and sold them to customers later on who went, once spreads had kind of tightened and uh, prices had gone back up. So he made a profit. And so what's kind of interesting about this is it's not just Goldman who's, I mean, this is like kind of a a, a big uh, example of you know how good bond trading has been for the investment banks on Wall Street. But uh, it turns out this is one particularly interesting story uh, about what happened to Goldman. But it turns out bond trading has been really good to all the bank, all the major banks right now. Uh, this quarter, they made about $14 billion off of it uh, in revenue. Um, and that's helped support all of their earnings uh, for the quarter. So, yay. I mean, and this is not surprising that when you have a combination of volatility and illiquidity, which you do in junk bonds, mm-hmm. um, like when junk bonds are quiet and they're not volatile, you can't make that much money off them. But when they do become volatile, their illiquidity turns into a huge um, profit center for market makers. And this is what these banks are, is they're two-way market makers, that you can go along to any of these banks and say, I have a Permian Energy bond, you know, how much will you pay me for it? How much can I buy it for? They'll have a bid offer spread between, you know, they'll sell it for higher than they'll buy it for. And they make money essentially from that bid offer spread and also by doing smart trading, which involves holding on to the bonds for a certain while. The only reason anyone is kind of raising their eyebrows at any of this is because there's this thing called the Volcker Rule, exactly, which ostensibly prevents banks from what's known as prop trading, using their own money to just go in and out of these markets and make bets, you know, on their own behalf. The problem is that there's really no way to be able to distinguish between prop trading and market making. They look look the same to the naked eye. I'm going to disagree. Okay. I feel like at some, a certain point, and it's, I don't know, I don't know off the top of my head what that point is, but at a certain point when you're making this much money, you are obviously taking risks beyond market making. And market making, to be clear, the idea of it is you are not particularly taking on risk. You have a portfolio of stuff that's ready to buy or sell, and you're like making your customers happy, you're providing liquidity, but you're not supposed to be, in, in particular, you're not supposed to be taking on that much risk. Okay, well, so, so well, let me, let me, let's, yeah. let's look at this a bit more closely. Um, this profit was made in an astonishing bull market in the junk bond market. The the prices of junk bonds for these energy companies went from like 40 to 75 over the course of a few months. And so that, you know, in the bond market is like a five sigma move. It's a massive, massive move. And the way that a market maker works, as you say, is that you have inventory and you're ready to provide that inventory to people who want to buy it from you. If you have a bunch of junk bond inventory, which is worth 40 cents, and then you wait a couple months and that junk bond inventory is worth 75 cents, you are going to make a lot of money. Like, it's not that surprising. And it's, you know, there are ways of hedging it. But ultimately, if you're in a bull market and this stuff goes up in value, I'm not going to be that sort of um, worried about the fact that you wound up making money. Let so, me put it. Well, let me just say it this way, and I'll let you speak. Yeah, Jordan, sure. But let me just say that if they had, if it had gone the other direction and they'd lost a hundred million dollars, mm-hmm. then people would have been like, "Well, you had too much on your books. You should have hedged. You're a market maker. You're not a prop trader." Like they would have been, ta- they would have taken been taken to task for for well, putting that much risk on their books. I I don't know. Yeah, I mean I, that that's possible. I mean, well, the 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 risk is the risk is measured, right? There's this thing called value at risk. We all understand that there are problems with using VAR, and they use other things as well. 
the, the risk is measured. And generally, the way that banks work is that so long as your VAR is lower than your P&L, basically, so long as the amount that you have at risk any day is lower than the amount of money that you've made. Like you're allowed to like run these things for a while, for like a few weeks. And is that prop trading, or is that just basically exactly what a market maker should be doing, which is providing liquidity to the market? So, that, so, so I actually that's was a I methodology was researcher on value at risk, you know, <laughs> yeah. at risk metrics, which developed this. Yeah. And let me tell you, there are lots of things that we didn't really evaluate under value at risk because we uh, they were so weird uh, they and 15% of this this guy's trades by the way um qualified in this category that we just basically let them decide what their price was and what what kind of movement was made on a day-to-day basis so in other words there's lots of like like stuff that we can't the value at risk model just can't even see oh absolutely so, yeah. um and we can i all just agree on that yeah so I, all i'm saying is like i think it's a sign and i don't have a proof i don't have his portfolio um but i think it's a sign that there was there was real risk on that and he knew it and he was like i'm making money why should i stop right, but but hang on a sec i think i think we can agree there was real risk where you have that kind of profit you obviously have risk mm-hmm. i think the question is not whether there was real risk the question is was the risk incommensurate with the market making activities that like, I think you're yeah. you're kind of implying here that market market making is a low risk well, thing yeah, to can, do can, it can is I, not especially not in jungle I was going to say can I can I jump in on cuz I so th- this is the point I kind of wanted to make which is I think it does raise the question like it does raise this question can you make a market without taking on risk yourself because part of making a market is being there to buy stuff when everyone else is selling I mean if you don't have a buyer essentially in the in the form of a bank um, when everyone's freaking out, they're going to be stuck with essentially illiquid bonds, right? And that's something we've been hearing about. Everyone's, wor- you know, Matt Levine has that little thing in his newsletter every 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 day. Where people are worried about bond liquidity, and so you know, in a perfect world, when people are freaking out, there'd be someone else, another actual customer, to come buy these bonds. But in reality, that's not how it always happens. There needs to be some sort of intermediary who can say, "Okay, I'll buy these bonds now, and then it might take a while, but I'll find someone else to buy them later." The question is, how long? You know, how long does it actually take you? How much? How long do you hold on to these bonds? But they're, you know, before and, you actually unload John's them. Bond- but you know, it can take a few weeks. To well, I would love Matt Levine's opinion on this, but I, I want to say <laughs> that maybe I, I'm spoiled because I no. worked in futures and 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 I understand futures better. And the market makers in futures they close out at the end of every trading day so with you nothing. Can't do that in junk I, I, I literally at, nothing. I actually talked to someone about this. I was yeah. talking to an ex bond trader um, about this uh, to because obviously this is not my area of expertise. I've never even been in a room with a bond trading desk but what he said to me is is yeah with things like futures there is you it is a little bit more of that ideal situation where you find a buyer you find a seller they give to you then you find a buyer and you unload it immediately um and, and the way he put it to me was with uh bonds it's that's sort of like uh, mutual orgasm uh that just doesn't actually happen at the sure. same time that quickly sure. it doesn't People, happen at, at yeah. the end of the day De- zero but yeah. it, it okay it, it, it doesn't happen at the end of the day ever For, like yeah if i have um $100 million of, of a stock or a futures contract or an FX contract that I want to unload, I can do that in one day, no problem. If I have $100 million of a junk bond that I want to unload and I try to do that in one day, the entire market would implode. It's just simply not possible to do that. Okay. It does take well. So in, the, in that case, if you, know, if, if you guys are right about this, then what I would argue is that we shouldn't let banks do market making in junk bonds. 
because well, it's but, too risky. But then, who, if you're who saying does... you can't do it without all this risk, then stop doing it. So who makes the market? Like hedge funds make the market. Yeah, or her, hedge, uh, hedge funds can make the no, market. Well, hedge funds are not going to make the market. Yeah. And somebody else can make the market. The point is that this is very risky. So I mean, if you're if you're claiming it, you can't and, do and, it. Okay. The other thing risky. is, there's no. <clears throat> there there are very transparent quoted prices for futures and equities, and so market making is much, much easier in those industries because you can just see what other people are quoting and then you can say, well, I can match that quote or I can't, I'm not going to yeah. match that quote. Right. Um, bond trading, again, is much more opaque for reasons both good and bad. Um, so market making in, in bonds is just a, a very different animal. And if you're going to do it, you're going to be doing it in a – my, it, it takes more time. You need more balance sheet, and you you know, and you need more um, risk. Risk, and to say that someone else can do that, the fact is, not really. Now there are attempts to create dark pools and electronic trading venues and stuff, which will allow order matching in fixed income, but you don't have fungible securities in bonds in the way that you do in futures and equities. Like if you have a company, it has one stock and it has like billions of dollars of that one stock and people can trade it. it you know, that same company would probably have 400 different bonds and they're all slightly different from each other. And you can't, you know, just say, oh, if you have that bond and I have that slightly other bond, you know, we can net them off. There's no, there's no inherent right for um, like market makers and junk bonds to exist in banks, right? So all I'm saying is like, let them stop existing or like I, yeah, I care that, more then, about the safety of the banks. No, okay, well, I don't. Honestly, I feel that the banks are relatively safe these days. And I'm, I feel that if you basically cut off the entire um, bond market by saying that like no one's going to buy a bond if they can't sell it. Yeah. And so if you base, if if you, if you said that companies can't issue bonds anymore, especially if they're junk rated, that would be much more harmful to the economy than allowing um, the kind of trading which, frankly, does not pose and has never posed any kind of existential risk. To be clear, I'm not saying nobody can do it. I'm saying that we shouldn't we shouldn't protect well, banks well, I, to do it. I, I think Felix is saying it's hard to imagine who else would step in as a market maker. I, I, I do want to say, um, coming back to the issue of does is the Volcker rule working or is it is it? I think I, I kind of pondered this for a bit. I feel like this is actually a happy story for the Volcker rule. At least. I think Felix might agree with me. I know Kathy's going to disagree with me. But the bottom line is they spent 800 pages writing this thing and pissing off Paul Volcker himself because they wanted to make sure that banks could continue to do things like make markets while also kind of blunting the or kind of getting rid of some of the riskiest behavior. And what we're seeing is that banks are still able to make a profit on their trading desks while things like value at risk, even though it's it's not a perfect model, you know, you've made that clear, the, the the amount of value at risk has been going down. They have gotten rid of some of their straight, pure, obvious uh, prop trading desks, little in-house hedge funds. But there are still banks that are saying, okay, we can make a profit, we can act as market makers, and we're not going to completely wholesale abandon this because these regulations are too tight. This might be an example of where sort of the Goldilocks approach to regulation is working. I'm saying that tentatively. I don't obviously that could change. I may be proven wrong, but it seemed like a happy story to me. Let's have a numbers round. Who has a number this week? I got one. What's your number, Kathy? Five hundred million. So did you guys hear about the um, NSA contractor who um, stole like lots of stuff from the NSA? He has amassed at least 500 million pages, which is 50 terabytes of governmental records. Now, the weird thing about this story, um, and he's being charged uh, 
by the Justice Department with like under the Espionage Act. It's really bad stuff. His name is Harold Martin III, by the way. The weird thing about Harold Martin III is that he's a hoarder. <laughs> and he's like ex-naval, ex-navy, um, like PTSD um, hoarder. And like he can't stop collecting things. So it's a weird thing where he's been collecting. Yes, he's been collecting things. And I'm not saying he should be doing that. And he's been leaving like thing, like extra top secret things in the back of his car, which is parked out on the street. Like so people could see through the window of his car into this stuff. Crazy, right? But he's also kind of just he's actually crazy. My number is is 2.8 trillion, which is the number of dollars currently under under management by independent registered investment advisors. Now, you know, this is what people of an earlier generation would call your stockbroker, basically, the people who have a broker who invests their money for them. This is a big business. It's pretty much as big as it always has been, the big passive investment revolution notwithstanding. Um, But there's been a big change within the business. And over the past few years, the AUM, the Assets Under Management for the Independent Advisors, has basically doubled. It's gone up from about $1.5 trillion to $2.8 trillion. Um, While what's known as the wirehouses, your classic stockbrokers at um, Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley or people like that – their AUM has gone up a much, much more slowly, about 12% over the past seven or eight years. And obviously, the market has gone up much more than 12% over the past seven or eight years. So in terms of, you know, their market share is shrinking. And the reason their market share is shrinking is because what you do, and this is happening much more frequently, is you build up a portfolio of clients at Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch or wherever. And then you just wake up one morning and you set up a little shop and you move all of your clients to your own independent shop. And that's more profitable for you than giving Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch half of your profits. And so there seems to be this kind of giant sucking sound of um, assets out of the big wirehouses, which I don't think anyone's really crying about. Hmm. My number's simpler. It's 60, 60%. That's how many... That's a percentage of Americans who now say they favor legalizing marijuana, which I feel like that's fair game for the show since we did have a legal weed episode, uh, which all time high since Gallup started uh, tracking this in uh, 47 years ago. And it's not just Gallup finding this. Uh, the Pew also, Pew survey also found uh, 57 percent of Americans favor legal weed. So it's somewhere in that range. Um, which, as I noted earlier this week at Slate, means that legal marijuana is now more popular than either he who shall not be named or Hillary Clinton. Hmm. <laughs> Doesn't surprise me at all. They're kind of it's kind of an antidote to both of them. <laughs> I was going to say after this election, <laughs> I feel like that's just one of those numbers which has been at an all time high for decades. Uh, it keeps well. Um, Actually, it kind of dropped a little bit in the past years and then bounced back up. So it's kind of been moving gradually towards a two thirds majority. All right, so that's it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Subscribe to us in the iTunes store or whatever clever app you're using. Write to us. The email is slatemoney at slate.com. Thank us by name. If you want to thank the producer, it's Virilyn Williams or the executive producers, Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers. Check out all of the Panoply shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. 